All right, folks, we're about to get to the show, but first, we wanted to remind you about this month's tripod movement. That's right, which is not a yoga pose Mm -mm. that you need to hold for an entire month, because that would be painful. (laughs) Tripod is a campaign to get people who don't listen to podcasts to give them a shot. Think tri-podcasts, so tripod. Mm -hmm. Just want to make that clear. See what's happening there? Now, it's hard to believe, since you are all among the converted, but more yep. than three-quarters of Americans haven't listened to a single podcast. What? Yes. This is a fact, because I'm reading it. And with such a wide range of amazing podcasts available, we think that they're missing out. We, I know they're missing out. Here's how we can all help change that. Find someone you like who's never heard a podcast. Maybe your uncle, your hairdresser, your extremely intelligent and probably understimulated parrot, and then tell them about a fantastic podcast that you you've heard lately. Or you can tweet your podcast, love. Brendan will demonstrate. All right. I'm, I'm hopping over to Twitter as we're doing this, and okay. I'm going to recommend Jonathan Goldstein's podcast, Heavyweight. It okay. is a phenomenal storytelling show. He has this one episode about his dad holding this decades-long grudge with his brother, and it is so moving and so funny. He and also happens to be a friend of yours. All right. He is also a friend of mine, but I became his friend because he was good at making audio. <laughs> anyway, true. so I am now typing this out. Listen... To heavyweight, and I'm hashtagging my tweet, tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D, and I'm done. That was very simple. (laughs) And the goal is that after tripod, more people will hear great shows, and then you get to have richer conversations with them about podcasts for once instead of TV shows. So really, we're all just making better conversationalists out of our friends. Isn't that nice? Or in Rico's case, his parrot. I don't have a parrot. I don't have a parrot. Stop it. (laughs) Here's your icebreaker. Here's your icebreaker. Why aren't koalas actual bears? Because they don't meet the qualifications. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. I love that. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from actor Gillian Jacobs. That will help break the ice. Well, She starred in the cult hit TV series Community. And the second season of her show Love debuts this week on Netflix. We're going to talk to her about that later. Plus, Sam Richardson of HBO's Veep is here Mm. to tell what's either a coming-of-age story or a ghost story. You be the judge. Also coming up, we learn why Rorschach's ink blots were the best ink blots. Rising pop star Jay Sum celebrates Halloween in March. And speaking of March, we inaugurate our own madness-style bracket pitting booze against booze. Everybody wins. Yay. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. A Republican plan to replace the Affordable Care Act has passed a second House committee. Chance the rapper donated $1 million to aid Chicago public schools. WikiLeaks has published what it says is the largest leak of secret CIA documents in history. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are joined by Brad Jenkins. He is an executive producer at the comedy juggernaut Funny or Die. Yes. And before that, he was in the Office of Public Engagement at the Obama White House. Brad What story are you going to be talking about today? I've got a good one from Norway. Okay. Mm. So a Norwegian website has tried something new. It's a pilot program for the comments under the articles. Uh, They are ensuring that you must read the full article before posting. Oh. (laughs) Which is a novel concept. Yeah, it's funny that we even need this as a as a it's it's funny that we need it, but but I love how they know they actually give you a test. Um, a 15-second test to prove that you've actually read the full article before you post your angry political retort. So they quiz you on the content of the article. It's like a book report. It's not to make sure you can spell total idiot properly or something, right? Like, because like, you're a troll yeah. and, you're, and you're about to go be mean. Could we could we expand this? Because if you did, if you gave people spelling tests and maybe a history exam, like you would really end trolling, I think, on the planet. It's a good point. I mean, but... I think that YouTube would probably lose a lot of, you know, (laughs) existing fan base. That's right. I was thinking about that. It's like, what would the YouTube comment test be? It would essentially be, are you an awful human being? (laughs) Oh, you are. You can totally leave a comment (laughs) underneath this video. Well, guys, I also think there's an irony in this that I think I'm pretty sure trolls come from Norse mythology. (laughs) So they're basically <laughs> disenfranchising one of their marginalized populations. So I can't subscribe to this. Oh, wow. Uh, but thanks for the story, Brad. Hey, that's what I'm here for, guys. Thanks for having me. And now time for some tasty cocktails. 
All right, this is usually the part of the show where we pair a true tale from history with a fitting cocktail. But this week, we're doing something a little bit different. That's right. You see, on our website this month, it being March and all, we are conducting our own madness-style bracket with a twist, a lemon twist. We are pitting classic cocktails against each other to determine the greatest of them all. (laughs) Martini. We are pulling for the martini. You can vote for your favorites at dinnerpartydownload.org. And earlier this week, I spoke to an expert in the field about her favorite. Her name's Carrie Jones. She writes about drink and travel for Savoir Magazine and won a James Beard Award for Best Food Blog. Her new book, Brooklyn Bartender, dives deep into cocktail culture. She knows what she's talking about, basically. So Rico was surprised when she revealed her drink of choice. So it's the daiquiri, which um, in my mind is one of the most underrated classic cocktails out there. Well, and when a lot of people, when they think of daiquiris, they think about the kind of strawberry-flavored slushy that you might have on the beach at a resort. Yeah. Uh, but the true classic is just uh, rum, lime, and sugar shaken together. So how, first of all, how did we get this idea that the daiquiri is the slushy thing? Um, so by the time the daiquiri was really popularized, which was in the middle of the 20th century, uh, the blender had recently been invented And it was just the fastest way to make a lot of very cold drinks very quickly. And sort of in the 70s and 80s, you saw a lot of cocktails kind of tending towards the sugary, the mass-produced. And so it's only been recently that we've kind of appreciated the original simple drink for what it is. So basically someone was drinking an original daiquiri and they were like, hey, I got this new blender thing here. I'm going to just throw that in there with some ice and see what happens. That's about it. That's about it. (laughs) Man, technology has done terrible things. Um, This sounds a lot like a gimlet. I have to say, the original version of this. It is very similar to a gimlet. Um, there's a whole family of drinks that you can kind of think of as sours. So whether it's a whiskey sour, whether it's a margarita, sort of the basic formula of a spirit and citrus and uh, something to sweeten it is something you'll see in a lot of different cocktails. What makes it not a gimlet is that you're using white rum instead of gin. The origin story, and some of these are, are more true than than others, but the accepted origin story is that there was an American mining engineer, Jennings Cox, in Cuba in the town of Daiquiri, ah. uh, which is in southeast Cuba, had a visiting guest from out of town and wanted to mix him a drink. And sort of the accepted drinks that you would serve to guests were gin or whiskey. So he'd want to make him a gimlet sure. or something like that, and then was out of those, didn't have either of those. So he kind of reached for whatever was on hand, and that was the local spirit, which was white rum. I mean, frankly, it does seem like these are the easiest things to come by in all of Cuba. I mean, rum is everywhere in Cuba. Limes are everywhere in Cuba. Sugar, I know that we actually did a story recently about the street drink, which is called guarapo, which is basically a sugar cane juice. Mm-hmm. Are we sure that Cox came up with this idea? It was. It's a drink that's probably been invented a thousand times over. By many people in many parts of the Caribbean where you're right, there's there's rum everywhere, there's sugar everywhere, and there's a lime tree just about everywhere you look. So we kind of credit Jennings Cox with naming the drink that we know today, but he was not the first one. Another case of cocktail imperialism. <laughs> exactly. What do you think makes this a classic cocktail? Or what makes anything a classic cocktail? I would say that simplicity is really a trademark of a lot of classics. You have a few ingredients that just work so well together. So in this case, uh, white rum has a little bit of body and a bit of a sweet character. And lime juice is just a perfect counterpart to that, kind of a a sour balanced out by the sweet of the sugar. And especially in the Caribbean, um, it's Mm. just the most refreshing drink you can imagine. Yeah, that's definitely helpful. Although when when you say simplicity is the hallmark of a classic cocktail, I think immediately of the Long Island iced tea, which has basically every (laughs) booze imaginable (laughs) in it. How do you explain that, Carrie? I wouldn't call that a classic. I would call that. (laughs) I would call that something that way too many people drink, but I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it a classic. Carrie Jones, her new book is called Brooklyn Bartender. Enrico, I think maybe to avoid confusion, we should just give that slushy type daiquiri a different name, right? Yeah, we can can just call it dessert, I think. Yeah, accurate. It works. Uh, Folks, the daiquiri is just one of 16 classic drinks facing off in our martini madness bracket. It's like that other tournament, except with booze instead of athleticism. Go vote for your favorite cocktails at dinnerpartydownload.org. to eavesdrop. Comic actor Sam Richardson has become a standout on HBO's Veep as a White House staffer who fails up better than anyone in history. (laughs) Sam also stars in the new series Detroiters. It's about a couple of best friends trying to eke out a living in advertising. Today we overhear Sam tell a tale about another best friend. Or is he? 
Hi, I'm Sam Richardson. Follow me, if you will, as I take you on a journey to a place that's near and dear to my heart and my memory, Camp Hayawenta, up in northern Michigan. When I was in elementary school, my dad insisted that I go to summer camp. It was a summer camp that he went to. And for a little kid from Detroit, it might as well have been Antarctica, because it was just far. I wasn't the kind of kid who could just go away for a chunk of time. If I went on a sleepover, I'm talking about by the middle of the night, I was like, no, time to go home. So two weeks away from home? No, that's, that was hell to me. So got out there to Camp Hayawenta. I'm sulking, as per usual, because I'm wishing I was at home. So one day we were in the cafeteria, the mess hall, as they call it in camp. And uh, a counselor stands up and like kind of goes through the evening's activities. It's like, all right, guys, you can play basketball. Uh, there's dodgeball. Uh, there's craft work. And me, I was just now starting my smart assery. So I raised my hands and like, excuse me. Uh, how about aimless wandering? <laughs> my table like has a little chuckle of a laugh. But then like piercing through the little chuckles, you just hear... <laughs> and I look through the people into the kitchen and I see this little man just laughing his brains out. He was a British man named Ian. He was a cook and he was laughing hysterically as if it was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. As I would like walk around camp from then on, I swear, Ian would like pop up out of nowhere and be like, oh, what are you doing right now? Aimlessly wandering by chance? Uh, yeah, I guess so, Ian. Thank you. So, so interesting because I was like this four and a half foot chubby boy who now had a little British hype man who just thought I was the funniest guy on earth. And then like he just kind of helped me to enjoy things. You know, we'd walk and chat and he would give me confidence in my like sense of humor, but also in other things. I'd do pull-ups, and, like, I could do extra pull-ups, and I could play dodgeball. And, like, we became these friends. So towards the end of my time there, there was this huge game they set up. And, like, just before I go out there, he looks to me, and he's like, any aimless wondering? And I think in his way, that was him saying, you can do this. So I got on that court and whistle blows. We all run towards the center to get the balls. And I run, I go, I actually happen to get my hands on a ball. Whoa, my goodness. Run back, my friends are going down left and right. Everybody's like getting knocked out of the game. I'm like, oh, what's happening? Okay, it's like the beaches of Normandy. And I look over to Ian and he's beaming at me. And I gained these extraordinary dodgeball powers, which I used to then pummel my opponents. So I like dodge this, dodge that. I'm doing cartwheels. I mean, I've got two balls in my hand and I'm deflecting. Ching, ching, ching. Like Captain America, I'm out there just sending these balls left and right as if like with a fireball, as if it's a Hayuken, as if it's a, another video game reference. I am destroying these other kids. And afterwards, all the strewn bodies on the court who had then been carted off to the side, it was me and one last kid. I pick up a ball, wind up, aim, and launch the most furious dodgeball you've ever seen. The wind of it pushed people back and it hits this kid and he leaves his feet and the place erupts. Little chubby Sam won the game. Come on, get my attaboy, high fives, boom, boom, boom. And I look over to Ian in the rafters, and he's gone. And I never saw him again. Honestly, I'm not making this up. It made me kind of wonder if I'd ever seen him like whether he was like this figment of my imagination, like this angel in the outfield kind of character. 
Ian, if you're listening to this, which I hope you are, thank you for the confidence that you gave me at Camp Winter, and I hope you're merrily and happily aimlessly wandering to this day. Sam Richardson, his comedy series Detroiters airs on Comedy Central. He'll also be appearing this week at the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas. And guess what? So will we. That's right. On Tuesday afternoon, March 14th, we will be one of several great podcasts appearing live at the cunningly titled event Podcasts Live. Our guests will include SNL's Sashir Zameda, Welcome to Night Vale's Jeffrey Craner, and music from Adrian Lenker of the band Big Thief. That's a great guest list, but the best part is it's free to the public. So all of you Austin listeners have no excuse. You do have to reserve a spot, though, which you can do via dinnerpartydownload.org. Get to it. Meanwhile, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, we talk to TV star Gillian Jacobs. Any public radio interview is a great public radio interview as far as I'm concerned. So you're going to hear a great public radio interview, basically, when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, we learn about the ink blots. No, it's not a band. We're talking about those dark blobs known as the Rorschach test. Correct. But we do have a musician coming up. She's real. Her name is Jason, and she's going to DJ your dinner party. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's actor Gillian Jacobs. For six seasons, she played the wannabe activist Britta Perry in the cult hit comedy show Community. She also did a star turn on season four of HBO's Girls, playing Mimi Rose, the foil to Lena Dunham's character. Gillian now stars in Love, a show about dating and relationships in modern Los Angeles. She plays Mickey, a program director at a satellite radio station who struggles with alcohol, romance, and just being a good person. Mm. When I met Gillian, I started by asking one of our two standard questions. What question are you tired of being asked? Um, probably like, you don't drink in real life. What's it like to play someone who's, you know, an addict? Uh, yeah. How do you pretend to be drunk if you've yeah. never been drunk before? What does it say about the state of our world that that is the thing that jumps out of your bio? It's extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> that you're not a you're not a booze bag, and yet you play someone who struggles with addiction issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know I do think it is kind of unusual that I've never drank. I understand people's yeah, fascination yeah. by that. That yeah. does distinguish me. But yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there are plenty of things that people pretend to do as actors. That's part of the job. So yeah, but did you? Is there to... some level where you think it is a little bit of a cosmic joke that you are playing someone oh, with yes. so many layers of addiction issues and getting meeting with such success. And since I graduated from college, it's been pretty consistent for me that I've yeah. played characters like this. So yeah, at first I thought it was like kind of a fun anomaly. And then I realized like, oh, this is a pattern for me. I have to like seek out other types of parts. So your breakout show was Community. Yes. But you, you've said that you, it's, at Community, you unlearned what you learned at Juilliard. Uh-huh. What did you unlearn? Well, I feel like it, it tapped into my silliness, which I don't feel is really was really valued when I was in college. That yeah. wasn't like a, a quality that was high on their list of importance. So uh, I also think that I got out of my own way enough to just follow any weird impulse I had, mm. which was sort of the beauty of that show and that cast was that everybody was really supportive of each other and encouraging of each other. And yeah. so you'd see people as the show went on really take big risks and do strange things. And, yeah. you know, you can feel kind of self-conscious on set if the other people that you're working with aren't kind about it. But that was a show where you'd finish a take and everybody would be like, oh my God, that was awesome. And so I feel like I, I got silly again, and it helped me get out of my own head. Oh, oh great. So much for bagels. So much for what? The bagels. You dropped them on the floor. Uh, they're called bagels. Uh, I lived in New York, Troy. I know what a bagel is. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you? What? You say bagel wrong. I say it the same as you. Say it again. Bagel. <laughs> <laughs> So I read that you're a public radio fan. Love public radio. You listen to a lot of podcasts. Yes. Uh, yes. I just want to do a mid-interview check-in. How's how are things going right now? It's great. I listen to this show, so I'm so excited that I'm finally on it. Yeah. I just wanted to check in. Okay, so we're doing good. (laughs) We're this is a great public. Any public radio interview is a 
great public radio interview as far as I'm oh, concerned. Thank you. I think that's a compliment, and I'll take it. Yeah. I'm going to transition to our discussion of love. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, you're starting in the second season of Love where you play Mickey, a recovering drug and sex addict who's a bit of a mess but trying to fix herself. She's someone who's constantly making mistakes and puts herself first, which aren't the most sympathetic qualities, and yet other characters in the show really like her. The audience really likes her. What What is that? Can you talk to me about that? As someone who's had to spend time unpacking this character. It's my innate charisma coming it through. Could be. <laughs> it could be. No, I think, uh, I think that she's very increasingly open about her issues on the show, which mm-hmm. I think endears her to people. Uh, I do think that for as selfish as she can be, she also loves the people around her and wants them to like her. Um, But she gets in her own way time and again, and maybe that's just a relatable characteristic because a lot of people can be their own worst enemies. Damn it, Bertie, the cat's gone. I told you you gotta close the doors. Oh, I'm so sorry, I must have forgotten. I'm sorry, I can go look for him. not already eaten by a coyote. Oh my God, I'm sorry. Oh. Might have been my fault. I left the door open in my room. That's it? What? You're not going to say, sorry, sorry, I accused you of losing your pet. That was probably quite hurtful of me. Can you just please not stand up for yourself today? I'm just feeling a little bit overwhelmed right now. All right, a couple more questions. I should get you just to read one of these, but I'm not. Can I? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me see if you can read this one. Yeah, you can. this one right here, uh, right there, most people. Okay. Most people know you've been act. Mm-hmm. Slow, most, please. Okay, yeah, most people. Radio. Okay, fine. Most people know you as an actor, but... In 2015, you also directed a great short doc called The Queen of Code. It's about Grace Hopper, a Navy rear admiral, who was also one of the pioneers of modern computing. I also read that you were interested in doing a biopic about Jean Seberg. What about her life intrigues you? I would have made that, I would have, you know, synthesized that and made it sound more colloquial. Not, I'm not critiquing you, but just so you know, I wasn't going to ask such a dorky question. But the substance of it is still there. Is that true? It's the same question. You think you're going to dress it up with your delivery? <laughs> what is it true, though? What is your interest in Jean Seberg? I think she lived a fascinating life. She was found in, like, a contest for St. Joan. She played Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc, yeah. I think it was, like, maybe a worldwide contest that she won and then, you know, had this great career in the French New Wave with Breathless, mm-hmm. but also had a lot of tragedy in her life, had a child who died and... She herself died young, and uh, I think I read, although I don't know if this is true or not, she attempted suicide several times on the anniversary of her child's death. So she's, you know, both this, like, kind of iconic beauty fashion icon, but also someone who had a lot of uh, difficult times, and so she just sort of fascinated me. But I would love that. Oh, maybe also I've always wanted that haircut. But I've never been able to go through with it. You can't do that. No, as an actor, you can't. If you have a recurring... Is it contractual? I think I think they'd be pretty upset with me if I showed up one day having cut all of but my hair But it's weird because a lot of people just think about the glamorous side of your career. Mm-hmm. But there really there are restrictions on a lot of stuff. <laughs> I can't cut my hair however I want. You can't cut your so hair however you want. It's so hard. <laughs> all right. We're almost done this interview. There were so many more questions on that well, sheet. Well, those are alt questions. Oh. Are, I don't want to keep you here the whole day. Because, the... <laughs> no, no. But I know that you're, you're pressed for time. Yes, you have to I go. Have to you go. have to go do some amazing show. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Let's just ask our second question that we ask everyone on our show, which is tell us something we don't know. And this can be an interesting fact about you or an interesting piece of trivia about the world. Okay. I think there's a great museum in my hometown of Pittsburgh that not enough people know about called the Mattress Factory. Is that a real museum or yes, is that it a is. store that you treat like a museum because you're weird? No. <laughs> what is it? It is an installation art museum and they give artists residencies uh, to live and work there. And then they also have great uh, they have great artists work like James Terrell. And um, oh, wow. so I feel like it's sort of an underrated gem of a museum. Why is Pittsburgh. it called the mattress? It's I mean, an, an old mattress factory. You could have figured that out. I, but I mean, maybe there's something more interesting. No. Gillian Jacobs, the second season of Love launches on Netflix this weekend. And Brendan... I'm from Pittsburgh, as I never tire of telling you. I knew this was coming. You did. Uh, but, and I will back Gillian up. The Mattress Factory is a really special place. It's, uh, it's awesome. a real place. She's not making that up. No, it's full of large-scale installation art, yes. It could explain the beyond in Bed Bath & Beyond. How's that? You know, maybe they're going to put in a permanent art installation someday. The, the beyond is art? That's what it stands <laughs> You get a 20, 20% off entry fee all the time. <laughs> 20% off a Warhol. 
All right, we've met our guest of honor, we've had a drink, and now this party needs some music. And here with a playlist is Melina Duterte, a.k.a. Jay Sum. She first caught folks' attention with songs she wrote in her bedroom and posted on Bandcamp. Not long after, revered indie label Polyvinyl signed her, and her debut album of smart lyrics and pop hooks called Everybody Works comes out this weekend. Here she is to DJ an anachronistic get-together. Hey, I'm Melina Duterte, and I go by Jason. I am throwing a Halloween party in spring. Because why not? <laughs> My first song that I'm playing at this dinner party is called To You by Andy Schaff. He like writes all his own music. It's kind of like Elliot Smith. Starts off with just a simple acoustic guitar and drums and like his beautiful voice. Jimmy Kim- There's like this moment, I feel like I know the timestamp, it's like two minutes and ten seconds, where there's just this gorgeous, weird, dissonant chord with his voice that he does. It is like one of my favorite musical moments that I've ever heard in a long time. My dinner party, it's Halloween themed, everyone has costumes on. Maybe this is in a basement and maybe we have like a fog machine too. As this song is playing, no one is talking. Absolute silence because we have to pay tribute to this wonderful artist. (laughs) Yeah, this is a weird dinner party. My second song is Title Track by Death Cat for Cutie and it's from their album We Have the Facts and We're Voting Yes. So I used to listen to this album and this song in my room, lying down on my bed, probably every day in middle school, and I didn't like completely understand the context of the album and like what Ben Gibbard, the lead singer, was talking about, you know. The song is probably about a one-night stand. (laughs) Sorry if that's inappropriate, but it definitely is about a one-night stand. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) My mom would uh, open my door and then she'd just look at me and she'd say, why is this music so sad? And then she'd close the door. (laughs) But uh, she was very supportive of my emo music. So at this Halloween party, title track by Death Cab for Cutie just ended and people are feeling a little antsy and they're feeling a little depressed. And then I go over to the fog machine, you know, I turn it up a bit and then I also turn off the lights and put on the disco ball and Very Special by Deborah Laws turns on. And at this point, everyone's like, whoa, I love this song. The opening line, all my life I look for you and my dreams are very special. It's like I'm yearning for you. It's just very beautiful, like there's a saxophone in there. It gets like pretty sexy. The male vocalist on that is actually her brother, Ronnie Laws. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't think I could do that with my brother, though, if I ever had a duet with him. (laughs) Absolutely not. Maybe, like, he was just there, and, you know, he was around, and she said, Hey, Ronnie, you want to sing on this song? And you know what? That, That actually makes so much sense why they sound so good together. Like, they have very similar voices.
As、uh, the Deborah Laws song "Very Special" ends, people are in the mood. You know, the disco ball is shining, the lights are going crazy, and my new track called "Baby" turns on, and people start dancing because you have to shake the booty for the song. Basically, at around 3 a.m., people are tired from dancing because my song "Baby" has been on repeat probably 30 times, and I'm by the door high-fiving everyone as they leave. And maybe I walk them to their cars, or I walk them to public transportation and make sure that they're safe. Jaysum, her debut album "Everybody Works" is out now, and she's currently touring the U.S. We're going to take a break, but when we return, we get etiquette advice from descendants of Emily Post herself, and then we listen patiently as Jeopardy champions get upset with us. What is the dinner party download? Continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, your audio arts and leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Newnham. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we learn there's way more to the Rorschach test than just a bunch of smears on paper. But first, let's learn some manners. Let's do that. Each、okay. week, you send us your questions about how to behave, and usually we pose them to a random famous person. But this week, we revisit a chat with our favorite actual etiquette experts, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post Zenning.、Mm. They are the great great grandkids of Emily Post. They are co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition, and they host their own podcast, Awesome Etiquette. A while back, we had them on the show after a long stretch of being out of touch. We have missed you guys.、Yes. I know it's been long time no talk. I know,、and、for no really good reason. We we have to say, and actually,、yeah. this leads us to our first question too. We were wondering. When this happens, you know, people fall out of touch with people.、Mm-hmm. What is the appropriate etiquette for reconnecting with a friend that you haven't communicated with in a long time? What、Do、we you... just did is great—a little catch-up, a little reason as to why maybe. But let's face it; it happens sometimes. It's okay to say, "I'm just so happy to be back in touch with you. I can't wait to get together." You、uh, gave me some great advice、yeah. the other day. Lizzie was saying, "You know, in that moment when you think of someone, just pick up the phone and call them. Like, let that、sure. moment of inspiration、yeah. when when they occur to you、uh, drive the interaction." What if just by chance? For whatever reason, it seems like it's just an opportune time for you to get back in touch with them. Like you, you do happen to have、oh. a business question, or it, I it, think play it depending on who the friend is. You can either say, "Hey, I've been thinking about you because I had this favor or this whatever on my mind," but. Let's catch up first. Okay.、Um, and sometimes you have to do the opposite and put the business side of it first. I really want to catch up with you personally, but I do have a question for you professionally. Do you mind if we tackle that? Oh, it makes you feel like such an opportunistic no, jerk. No, no. <laughs> but it depends See, on what, what the proposal is. Because if someone's an expert in something like etiquette, and you have an etiquette question, it's okay to be like, "Hey, I was just, you know, I've been meaning to catch up, but."、Mm-hmm. Right. Here's something you're good at, and the other side of that is, if someone did that to you, wouldn't you be like, "No, I'm just so glad to help out." You're happy to hear from them, right? You're not like, "Oh my gosh, yeah." But then, look I, at you. But then I would second guess why it took them so long and come up with a, a whole string of dramas in my brain. But that's maybe me. All right. <laughs> Speaking of which, maybe let's get to some people's etiquette questions and have see what their problems How are. How convenient! You've got a bunch of etiquette questions yeah, ready got, for us. Yeah, you got some、oh, etiquette、yeah. questions for us. Thanks, guys. We've had a great summer. Just in case you were wondering,、yeah. we just wanted to catch up. This one comes from、uh, another New Englander, Joshua in Medford, Massachusetts, and Joshua asks. During the work week, I pretty much live in different hotels all over the country. Should I be tipping housekeeping? I understand it's not a great job, and they deserve、mm-hmm. the tips, but I already pay a hefty price for the hotel. I want to do the right thing. Please help, Joshua. 
In a word, yes. This one's easy. Yes. Tipping housekeeping is 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 easy and fun. No. Yeah. Um, well, let's not oversell it, but yeah. And it it is um a really common courtesy, but it's one that not everybody observes. So I, I really appreciate the question. There's a slight tweak to this that if you're really traveling a lot and you're really strapped for cash, one of your options is to put your do not disturb outside so mm. that you're not getting housekeeping service for the whole week and just tip on the last day when they clean up mm. before you leave or whatever. But uh, yeah. along these lines, you did. there's a difference maybe between housekeeping, which comes in, does some dirty work in your room, and then there's yep. like uh, somebody who comes up and brings you a, a tube of toothpaste. Yes. Do you tip that guy too? Yes, you oh, tip that I guy tip too, that guy. but that's like a, a dollar or something like that. Yeah. All right, but then I'm asking for three tubes of toothpaste next time. Uh, no, here, you're just weird. That is, that is true. <laughs> well, his teeth are horrible. So. <laughs> I need a lot. Here's yeah. something from Philip in New Rochelle, New York. Philip writes, if you're in line to use one of those self-checkout machines at a supermarket and the person ahead of you has finished paying but is bagging their items slowly and you have one item and want to get going, is it okay to move in and start scanning your item even though this other person is still standing there at the machine. If you, if you could do it without disrupting or disturbing them, if you could just, like, do the scan and pay and be gone, but... I, no, I mean, they're still there getting their group but yeah. pulling the bags yeah. off from the thing. I you're wouldn't displease anybody. Yeah. You're this stepping one. on toes, man. I mean, if you're in that much of a rush, you should have gone to a convenience store. <laughs> you know what I mean? But couldn't you, isn't there kind of a middle ground here where you're just like, excuse me, I just got one item. You mind if I slide in Is here? it really going to make that much difference to the amount of time? Exactly. I know, it's only 10 seconds, but, like, the amount that your blood pressure rises, you might be putting years back mm. on your life. I I think if you're rushing around that much, yeah, you're going to have a heart attack anyway. Therapists everywhere are excited to get new clients. <laughs> and I do feel like with etiquette, we're talking about what makes a civilized society. And yes, there will always be people that are faster and stronger. But the whole point of civilization is that they don't just get to run <laughs> rampant over everyone. Oh, wow. I just picture like someone pushing aside an older person because they need to get their funyuns. From this small etiquette problem, <laughs> we have like gotten all the way to the apocalypse of the civilization. So I think, Philip, you could, right. here's, a, here's something. How, I have a question for you guys. Can he start eating his funyuns <laughs> before he checks them out? Is that ethical? Well, ethical is totally different, but the store that's store policy. Man. Yeah, of course you can. As long as you swipe the little bark. Okay. Code. You <laughs> can break that bag open. So there you go, Philip. You can, if you're so impatient, you can eat your funyuns. I don't know why you're buying them now, but that's what we're saying. You're buying. Um, this next question comes from Samantha in Oakville, Ontario, and the question is: A friend and I were recently invited to a board game night. On our way to the host's house, we stopped to grab some takeout food for ourselves, since everyone else at the gathering had eaten already. We ate the food at our host's home, played games, had fun, and left. Hmm. A month later, the host invited us to another board game night but also said, quote, try not to leave your garbage at my place like you did last time. Whoa! I'm confused. We had put the takeout and the host's indoor garbage bin. Seemed like all was well. Does the host expect us to take the trash outside? Thoughts? <laughs> uh, it sounds like I, they do. Yes, that's what that host is expecting. No, I don't really yeah. think it was right of him or her. This is a host guest dance question for me. Yeah. I, I, um, I could definitely see a perspective where a host might say to themselves, I wish someone would take that fast food packaging that they brought with them when they leave. My apartment smells like cheeseburgers. Yeah. I, I, at the same time, I don't think it's appropriate for that host to call the guest out and tell them not to do it again. I think it would be a courtesy for a yeah. guest to maybe do that. Really? To, to, to not leave a bunch to of Detris behind. Someone. What? If you're hosting a party, yeah. you take out the no, garbage. No, no, no. You provide them a bathroom. <laughs> you yeah. provide a trash can. You don't make them take their trash well, no, out. You're not camping. They're bringing an extra. Defend your Position. I uh, would say that as a guest, I'm trying to minimize my impact. I'm trying to do everything I can to not be a burden on the host. As a host, I'm trying to do everything I can to put my guests at ease. If yeah. a guest left that packaging behind, I put it in the trash. And I just, I would never call a, a guest out on that. No way. But in response, what she should do is if they want to go to this party again, just say, you know, duly noted, we'll make sure that happens if we bring takeout next time. And if they don't want to deal with someone who's acting like this, then just say, oh, don't worry, we're not able to come anyway. <laughs> there you go. A polite middle finger. <laughs> Lizzie Post and Daniel Post setting. thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post setting. their podcast is called Awesome Etiquette. 
And if you're about to blow up at someone in the self-service checkout line, take a deep breath and send us an etiquette question about it instead, please. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact for the sake of our civilization. Yeah. And by the way, on our site, you'll also find an exceedingly silly video about various other ways to contact us. It features Rico squeaky shoes, among other things. Hello, Emmy Award. And now, time for Chattering Class, in which we're schooled by an expert in some party-worthy topic. The topic this week, psychology's infamous Rorschach test, and our teacher is author Damien Searles. Yes, his new book, The Ink Blots, is all about Herman Rorschach, an artistically inclined Swiss psychiatrist who in the 1910s learned he could diagnose patients just by asking them to describe what they saw in abstract blots on paper. The test and those inkblot images became iconic, showing up in everything from comic books to the cover of Jay-Z's biography. When I spoke to Searles, I asked him about the genesis of Rorschach's test. At first, he was using it to study how people perceive the world. He originally didn't think of it as a test. He thought of it as a perception experiment. Mm -hmm. You know, do people start from little parts and build up a big picture, or do they start superficial and then zone in on details? How do people go about engaging with the world. He did start to realize that it was a test that would let you say this person's schizophrenic, this person's manic-depressive, patients of different types or people of different personalities had these kind of systematic differences in how they went about seeing. The test is actually very specific. These aren't just randomly made blobs on a paper. They're not, like, different every time. Tell us what the the test consists of. That was the other big surprise for me. I sort of thought the Rorschach test was just these smears, and, you know, you'd make your own or a doctor would make their own or whatever. In fact, there are 10, and there are only 10, and Herman Rorschach made them, and he put them in a sequence, and those are the 10 that are still used today, 100 years later. How did he settle on these 10 images? Well, we don't know, and we never will, because that year and a half of his life, there's pretty much no record. But clearly what he did was make these ink blots. There are some drafts where you can see them getting, in a way, more and more concrete and specific, but at the same time indeterminate and weird. So they're specifically like something, but you're not quite sure what. They really don't look like just random smears. But I, I will say, you know, there's a tension that you talk about in the book between people who think that the test is actually a total hogwash and those who think it's essential. And what you just told me seems to make one maybe teeter towards the hogwash camp because, you know, you have to look at exactly these 10 images. There's something special about these 10 images, but we have no idea why. Well, there are two answers to that. One is by now, there's millions and millions of data points on these. So if you give me an answer about a snake with a mustache on the moon, I can look up in a table and have an objective answer to whether lots of other people see that or no one else sees that. Hmm. The other answer is they're good. They have both a structure and a freedom to them. For example, one of the big results of the test is how much you see sort of movement and life in the images, as opposed to just seeing them as, like, frigid and dead. Now, if you show someone a picture of kicking a soccer ball, then pretty much everyone will see movement in it. Mm -hmm. And if you show someone some random smear, pretty much no one will see movement in it. So it's actually not that easy to come up with Mm. an image that is liable to see movement if you're on this side of the tipping point, but not if you're on that side of the tipping point. It needs to be kind of abstract enough, basically, to accommodate a variety of interpretations. Abstract in a specific way, not just like a, you know, a a Mark Rothko rectangle. No Mm. one's going to see movement in it at all. (laughs) There have been a lot of efforts down through the years to sort of come up with new images, either as a control test or just because different psychologists wanted to do different things. And none of those worked because, you know, this is where it matters that he was an artist. Yeah. Even though it was intuitive, like, he actually came up with stuff that works. The Rorschach test has become part of the popular culture, even part of the language. What about it do you think is so enticing to people? One of the things that surprised me was to learn that that was really only in America that that happened. And what I think happened is that the Rorschach test really tapped into a few things about American culture. In the early and mid part of the century, everyone was interested in this idea of personality. Character wasn't so important. You know, 
how noble or manly or virtuous you are. It was much more about how charismatic or fascinating or intriguing you are. Because if you don't stand out in the faceless modern crowd, then it doesn't matter how good you are because no one cares. Mm. So, you know, if you think about the great Gatsby, he's a crook who got his money from bootlegging, but that doesn't matter. He's not Gatsby the good person. Mm. He's Gatsby the great who has this sparkle and this fascination, right? Mm. So everyone in America is suddenly interested in this kind of unique personal inner quality. But how do you measure it? Well, here comes this test from Europe. Mm. So that's when the test takes off. The thing is that he died very soon after developing the test. Rorschach published it in June of 1921 and died at only 37 years old Hmm. in 1922. So the whole history of the test since then has been this kind of sorcerer's apprentice where it's just unleashed and different people are doing all sorts of different things with it. And he isn't there to guide it yeah to guide it or keep it on track what do you think he'd think of what has become of his test well there's so many i mean there's so many different things that have become of it i don't think he'd mind seeing it on the cover of jay-z's memoir but he might mind some of the crazy uses it's been put to you know in mid-century at the heyday of freudianism it really did turn into this kind of film noir cliche type thing where oh if you see smoke on card whatever then like you're a good candidate for electroshock therapy and if you see this you you know you're pretty suicidal and it did kind of get out of control but i i will say you actually opened the book with a fascinating anecdote of a guy who shows no signs of anything abnormal for many other kinds of diagnostic tests and then has administered this inkblot test and almost seems to be unable to keep himself from seeing incredibly violent and frightening things in the test. And he, of course, later turns out to be schizophrenic. What is it about the test that alone among others could do such a thing? I think the really unique part of the test is that it's visual. The human brain is set up to be visual. A lot of it is devoted to visual processing. I've seen estimates as high as 85% of the brain. Seeing just goes deeper than talking. Uh, You can really, like, manage what you want to say much more than you can manage what you want to see. You know, if you're being asked, I often hear voices other people don't hear, true or false. You kind of know if you were trying to present yourself in a certain way what you should answer to that question. Sure. But does this look like a bat or does it not look like a bat? I mean, what am I supposed to be trying to do? So partly because it has this kind of mysterious quality, but more importantly because it's visual— it really is a much more kind of emotional experience. So you're saying if I really want to get to the bottom of the people that I interview on this show, we should really turn it into a TV show. (laughs) Show them some Rorschach. Yeah, Rorschach test is a great topic for radio, (laughs) let me tell you. (laughs) Damien Searles, his new book is called The Inkblots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test, and The Power of Seeing. And by the way, Rico, you know that you can learn a lot about me Mm. And my personality by looking at the stains all over my shirt. Oh, that's... Every day at work. Yeah. I learned that you are a messy person and eater. Who forgets to bring a stain stick. He still does it. It's kind of pathological. All right. And now let's take a moment to gaze into the dark heart of our mailbag slash inbox slash voicemail. It is time for some listener comments. A.K.A. time to hear listeners upbraid us for making dumb mistakes. And also say nice things. Sometimes. And say some nice things sometimes. Yep. Not the case with this first one, though. This is Carl from Dearborn, Michigan. I'm in the car, so I, I'm constantly listening to radio. I recently heard you use the word restaurateur. The correct word is restaurateur, as in the French. I know in English common usage, the word restaurateur is gaining some ground, but it is incorrect. I look to you guys for proper grammar. Come on. You are 100% correct, Carl. Duly noted. We grammared unwell. We acknowledge it. Um, A few weeks back, we also managed to enrage the Jeopardy! contestant community. They are a vocal bunch, we've learned. They are. Who knew? When we interviewed the Golden Globe-winning star of the TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Rachel Bloom, she said that it was unfair for Jeopardy! champs to play amateurs at bar trivia. At least if there was a cash prize on the line. That's right. Now, that statement touched off a minor Twitter backlash from Jeopardy! contestants. Here's one of the folks we offended. My name is Sabrina Fritz. I live in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I'm a noted Jeopardy loser. Grandmas recognize me. <laughs> Many of my friends now are former Jeopardy contestants, multi-day winners, tournament of champions winners. And we do come up against a little bit of 
scrutiny at some of the trivia nights that we go to. Everybody seems to have a comment whenever we all go out to play bar trivia or trivia tournaments. Um, But I think that, you know, if you're losing at bar trivia, I mean, if they're not being a jerk about it, I mean, just get better. We're beatable, for sure. (laughs) There you go. Jeopardy champions are beatable. Don't discriminate against them. Please. Also, flex your thumb. Practice with your thumb button. Mm -hmm. By the way, this is for real. Just a couple of weeks ago, Rachel's show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend was an answer on Jeopardy. (laughs) So apparently all has been forgiven. Phew, because you do not want to be on the receiving end of Trebek's wrath. Infamous. Yeah. Finally, we recently aired the first edition of our series Menu Mysteries, in which we investigate unique ingredients on a new restaurant menu, one of which was a fudge-like Norwegian cheese called Yetost. That inspired a lovely memory from a listener named Gail in Napanee, Indiana. I had a story that I wanted to share with you. In the late 1970s, my parents took a trip to Scandinavia with my uncle and his wife, who was Swedish, and a standard breakfast offering that my father fell in love with was kind of a little open-faced sandwich that was made with a dark bread hard salami, and then a thin slice of Yadis cheese, and the little dollop of marmalade slathered on top of it. And when my parents came to live with me, one evening we're having supper together, and they introduced me to this little sandwich. You know, my mom and dad are both gone now, and I was just very thankful for the uh, precious pause to remember them. You prompted me to go get the Yadis out of my refrigerator. Thanks so much, Gail, for sharing, so nice. and also for giving us a new pronunciation of Yatist. Yeah, we were calling it Yay Toast. Yeah, but is... what do we know? We're not restaurateurs, no, so... Of course not. Hey, if you have a comment <laughs> or story, we'd really love to hear it. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click on Contact. All right, and that is the Dinner Party Download for this week, ladies and gentlemen. But don't despair. We are online 24-7 on Twitter and on Instagram. Our handle on both is Dinner Party DNLD. This show would not be possible without the help of our senior producer, Jackson Musker, our associate producers, James Kim and Krista Ripple, and our associate digital producer, Christina Lopez. Engineering assistance came from Jake Gorski. Thanks also to Nate Toby. Once again, if you find yourself in Austin, Texas next week, come see us on Tuesday, March 14th at noon, when we will be appearing live as part of an event called Podcast Live. Our guests include SNL stars Sashir Zameda and others. We've got a link to free tickets at dinnerpartydownload.org. And if you can't be there, we'll be making a podcast-only episode about our Austin adventures. Go sign up for it at iTunes. That's it for this week, folks. Be kind to each other. Bon appétit.